0: This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today I'm speaking with Paul Tomaszewski of the MB Roland Distillery in Pembroke, Kentucky. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great for me to be here, too. Thanks for showing me around your space, too. So tell me a little bit about your distillery. What are you building out here in Pembroke? Well, this
1: was an Amish dairy farm, so it's a little unique. It's unique in that we do have a little bit better of a room situation or space situation than a lot of other craft distilleries that are out there. But there's also a few things that come along with that. For one, we didn't have good utilities, or in some cases, any utilities. We didn't have water. We didn't have uh, actual electricity. We had to have all that run in. And that was a little bit of a process. Okay, so a true Amish farm. Correct, true Amish farm. And as far as the buildings, there's a lot of benefit there for storage space and for growth. Mm-hmm. But to put it in a nice way, the Amish quality craftsmanship mantra does not permeate all over when it comes to structures that they put up. So there's been some obstacles trying to get things a little bit presentable and useful for our purposes. Um, We still have a few buildings without electricity. Oh my gosh. You know, you you really don't need it in an aging warehouse. It's more of a luxury than a necessity.
0: So let's kind of talk about that a little bit then. So what were kind of the challenges to opening up a distillery with, when you start basically with a blank piece of land, right? Uh, So you you opened in 2009, is that correct? We Uh, opened
1: in 2009.
0: Okay, we're kind of an hour north of Nashville, Tennessee. Right, on
1: the way to Paducah, Kentucky.
0: Okay. And we're sort of
1: in a unique situation. We're off I-24, which goes a little bit of a different direction than if you're going from, say, Nashville to Louisville Mm -hmm. and get into that a little bit more later. But as far as the actual, some of the issues, it was a little bit of a different mentality for some of the people around here. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in trying to broaden their understanding of getting this part of Kentucky involved in the whole tourism aspect of distilleries and bourbon. And so it but it's been a very good process with a lot of support along the way. But as far as the actual struggles for the business and the buildings it's one of those things where we pay for a lot of it upfront and sweat equity, <laughs> and, and, okay. a, and a lot of trips to the hardware store.
0: Yeah, but you know the way to the nearest uh, Lowe's or Home Depot. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> really quick and easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they like me
1: because we spend some money there. But as far as the actual process, I mean, the it's it gives us a very good foundation for where we want to be, and we're sort of growing into it. You can see sort of a. Process there is. We're starting to put a few barrels away into our rig house, and we've now grown our distillery from a 100-gallon operation to a 600-gallon. Wow! We pretty much had everything contained in a relatively confined 2,000 square foot space when we were 100 gallons, and now we're using our whole building, which is a little over 5,000 square feet.
0: Okay. So, how did you find this space? Did you intend to start out on a gigantic farm when you first had an idea to start a distillery, or um, did the space find you? Uh- I think it was a combination of both, to be honest with you. The way the story goes okay. <laughs>
2: is uh,
1: we were looking for a piece of land, my wife and I, who she's involved day one intricately with the, with the actual business side and production and everything that we do here, when we first sort of thought, hey, let's do this when we grow up kind of concept, we figured, okay, well, let's find a few acres that are undeveloped and we can work with that. And that evolved to a real estate agent that we spoke to that said, hey, you need to go look at this farm that's up for sale and is an Amish place. And they came, uh, or we came by and looked at it and it really spoke to us as far as the location, as far as the way the buildings were laid out of course, we had to get it for the right price. Of course. And it was a very unique situation in that the Amish, particularly around here, but I think in general, they don't really sell outside of their communities. And this was a unique situation where they were doing that. And we happened to be the ones standing there ready to make an offer.
0: Wow. That's, so the timing just kind of worked out. Yeah. But so you went from having like um, the dream of having two or three acres now, you have about, what, 100 acres out here? or uh... Well, we use
1: about 20 acres here and then the rest is farmland, of course. But the actual process as far as the buildings and the property, whenever we were going to get a few acres and grow into this, it was, hey, let's uh, get a few acres and we can set it up as we feel like we're capable and in a position to financially speaking. Whereas when we got this land, it became more of an immediate need. Hey, we need to turn this into a business and start making some money if we're going to go this far. And so it did complicate things. I mean, we still started very, very small And I guess sort of lessons that we've learned along the way, you know, it's been tougher for us to grow in some ways because there is a whole lot of cost and work involved with the amount of land and buildings that we have.
0: Sure, Let's kind of take a step back. When you were still in that mode of when we grow up, Let's start a distillery. You know, you don't come from a distilling family. Is that correct?
1: Right. I'm originally from Louisiana, which I jokingly say is the other state with bad roads, rough politics, and alcohol being a major part of the economy, <laughs> of course, to Kentucky. And I got here, uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I was in the Army, just about four miles away. And I was sort of on my way out looking at options on how that was going to happen and this sort of stung me as, hey, this is a neat idea. And I saw whispers of one or two craft distilleries out there in the media. And at that time, there were none in this area. They were you know, mostly in California, Colorado, New York, et cetera. And started reading up on them and just thinking about the concept of getting into the business. And as I researched it more, it became more of a, hey, we need to do this. And I still question if that was the right decision,
0: <laughs> but but I do think says the man whose bourbon is completely sold out in yeah. his uh, tasting room. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well that's true. It takes time to age that. <laughs> but as as far as the getting into it, I mean, I was really quite intrigued with the whole whiskey production process. And you know, I was never a big big drinker, sloshing it back or anything like that. It was more of a this is sort of interesting, and let's study it. And then the whole concept of making it became. A reality when you see other uh, whispers of of businesses far away that say hey you know we're doing this and we're showing a, a certain amount of success and in a way we've done that for other businesses I realize that that look at us you know however many years after we've been in business now but at the end of the day it's one of those things where everything's relative and so you know there might be 200 or 300 or however many craft distilleries right now well you know fast forward five ten
0: years from now there might be a thousand sure It's kind of hard to imagine, you know, here we are, it's November of 2014 as we record this. You know, 2009 seems like a different era in the craft spirits world. Uh, It's it's almost like somehow only five years ago, you were quite the pioneer for wanting to fire up your own still and go out on your own and make a small product. It was small, it was the
1: stone age yeah. compared to
0: now. <laughs> so what was that like for you then, you know, the there's paperwork obviously involved to open up a distillery. Was the TTB set up at that time to really kind of what was that process like being one of the very first people in this area to go through opening up a craft distillery? What was it like to work through all those regulations, federal and state and local? I'm sure you had to educate people as to what you were trying to do yourself. What was that process like?
1: Right, you've got the right idea. The TTB, when whenever we were applying for a permit, they were just starting to get into the mode of digesting uh, the influx of craft distilleries. Mm-hmm. They, In some ways, they didn't know how to treat it, to be honest with you. I could sort of tell when I put together my application. yeah. I did it with military precision, which was my background. Okay. And when I submitted it to the young man and he, we had an interview on the phone, he said, this is the best application I've ever seen before. <laughs> well, fast forward to now. Mm-hmm. We did a paper application. Everything's done online.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And that's a good thing, but for us, it's a bad thing because our still isn't hasn't been converted to an online application. So whenever we need to get something changed, yeah, you have to find the right person that still processes the paper version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Now, as far as our state goes, I remember. I'm not so certain that I really educated them, but I think I helped to make them a little bit more aware that there was an actual industry growing from within.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we, I was one of the first craft distilleries in Kentucky and when they they sort of didn't know how to deal with this other than hey you know fill out your license and do you have your federal paperwork and since then they really the actual Kentucky ABC took a a pretty hard look at hey we need to have a sort of determination here for large versus small scale producers and since then actually earlier this year they passed a class B distiller's license Oh, really? in the general assembly. So now you can actually get a small scale production distilling license in Kentucky. There's not a whole lot of difference other than the licensing fee. Well, (laughs) I hope it's lower. Right, right. But I think the state, I don't think, I know the state really appreciates overall the growth in the industry and and ABC, their attitude is, you know, as long as you want to do it honestly, we're here to help you.
0: Okay. Yeah, I guess Kentucky is different in that it has a long history of distilleries. So getting a distillery application would be nothing weird for the ABC. It's just more about scale for them. And like you said, a a small producer is such a new thing to them. Uh, Well, yes and no. I mean, to be honest with
1: you, I think the larger distilleries at that time were really getting into, and back in 2008, 2009, the whole concept of doing a lot of on-site retail sales. Now, wineries in Kentucky had been doing that for years. Okay. But in the case of distilleries, it was a little bit of a foreign territory. There was a little bit of getting used to, even when I came into the picture where we were educating each other on how things need to be done and different distilleries doing things differently and what was the proper procedure versus you know someone not doing it the right way. Not that they were trying to do it the wrong way, but that you know the information wasn't as clear as it could have been as far as the established practices for certain things. Something as simple as how do you sell your product on site? You know, do you? How do you pay your taxes properly? How do you account for it properly? And I'm talking at the state level, not at the federal level.
0: What is it like for you then to be a craft producer, kind of with the, you know, the big boys, not too far up the road? How do you develop your niche then? You know, because everyone already knows of Kentucky has a bourbon trail, and all the big producers are present on it. Now you're this new thing that's kind of growing out here. What what is it like building a brand when you're surrounded by the legends of the bourbon right, industry? You get, and you got Jack Daniels. South of us. Oh, that's a very good point, right down in Tennessee. <laughs> right. Well, it was a breath of fresh
1: air when we opened, and a lot of people that would stop in, because we are pretty accessible off of the interstate, mm-hmm. they would uh, say, I didn't realize there was a distillery over here in this part of the state. And now you just have a lot more people that they don't respond that way. They've either researched and found out that we're here, or uh, in some cases, uh, one thing about Kentucky, for example, it's a very, very, very tightly knit community of distilleries, large and small. And it's a good thing because we all sort of try to help support each other. One thing that we got going a couple years ago with the Kentucky Distillers Association was the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Craft Tour, sort of an offshoot of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail for smaller distilleries. And the thing about that is you can go to a craft distillery in Maysville, Kentucky, that's six hours from here, and get sales paraphernalia for MB Roland Distillery and vice versa.
0: Oh, that's cool. The licensing kind of allows you guys to... Well, no, it's the established it just, tourism network. Oh, it
1: is just the tourism yeah. network. Okay. And, and we, we have regular meetings. We know each other well. well. Most of us have been to each other's operations and, and just passing and and things like that. And, and we're, we're all growing up together too because none of us, I use this analogy, uh, in other states you might have someone that's been in the business 10 years and, oh, you're an extremely seasoned wise old man in distilling and here in Kentucky, you know, compared to the large operations that have been in business for, in some cases, hundreds of years, you know, it doesn't matter if you've been in business 10 years as a craft distiller, you know, you've got no comparison to that. (laughs) right? So I think we all sort of embrace that and we all try to help each other out. I was just talking to a gentleman from another craft distillery this morning about a business related question and he's called me before about things. We do that all the time. We really do, and although we are, I jokingly say this, we're in the badlands of Western Kentucky, which is true because you know there's a lot of dry territory in between
0: <laughs> Christian
1: County, Kentucky, and Louisville and Lexington and stuff like that. Okay, it's changing for you know that some of these counties are going wet now. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, the actual mentality is such that. We are very connected, so it's a relatively short distance. I probably spend more time in Louisville than Nashville. Oh really whether that's a good or bad time, <laughs> you know
0: so I mean that, that that's an interesting so the the existence of dry counties like right at your doorstep that's an interesting I don't know if challenge is the right word, but landscape to be launching a product into what is kind of your marketing plan? How do you get the word out about MB Roland? Do you count on word of mouth? Is your uh, tasting room a big part of that? What do you do to make sure your distributor knows that people ask for your product? Ah, distributors. Okay. Yes. <laughs>
1: no, I have some good ones. Okay. But as far as the that whole process, you know, it's, in my opinion, and, you know, I, I learned this through people in the industry that I meet, whether it be new distillers, whether it be people that come through and attend the course that we teach here. Mm-hmm. The single largest, I don't know if I want to say fallacy or should I say misstep that people make in this business is they do not appreciate the marketing and distribution side, more so the sales side. Marketing is one thing, how you market your product. Yeah, It's really how you execute the marketing and conduct the sales or make the sales happen. We do have a very, I would say, bustling retail operation here that really helps us out a lot and it helps market us to the local area. Other than that, it has been a combination of simple, you know, hit the road, yeah. get people to taste your product, Fan the flames when people come and show an interest in your product, whether it be a customer or direct consumer, mm-hmm. or whether it be distributors that really take a liking to you, or salespeople for the distributors, or whether it be a bartender or just a liquor store owner, whatever you know, you you try your best to help connect with them and to really move things a little bit further. Mm-hmm. There's folks that I know in this business that have salespeople and they have a marketing budget, and that's a big part of really trying to escalate, in, especially in a quick way, yeah, the marketing and the sales side of your business. Are we trying to do that? I mean, we're still wrestling with that, to be honest with you. I mean, we can make a lot more product than we could last year at this time because of the size of our operation now. Yeah, But at the same time, you know, our focus is whiskey and we'd love to sell as much unaged product as we can. However, I don't know if I want to invest a whole lot of time and money marketing the unaged product when the whiskey's on its way. You know, it's uh, relatively in the near future. And two years
0: doesn't sound that long anymore. <laughs> it's, it's not until you're, you're sitting on it and waiting for it to, <laughs> when can I put it, in the, <laughs> put it in a bottle? So let's kind of talk about that then. Let's talk about your whiskeys and your unaged spirits. What, what all do you make out here at MB Roland? What kind of products do you have? One thing that we've sort of put ourselves in a niche And we learned this relatively early
1: on. We, I say we, anyone working here appreciates you make essentially one process, one product very well. And we have three different recipes, maybe four if you count a fourth one that we make every now and then. But they're all grain-based and they're all very similar in the way that we cook them as far as the mashing side, the fermentation, and then the distillation. They're all very similar animals. And for that reason, we're very good at that process. Mm -hmm. The unaged products are simply unaged versions of those. We do some naturally flavored, you know, fruit-infused and spiced unaged products. Okay. But... It all starts with the same
0: base product. Exactly.
1: The real science side is that same process that we do, whether we're making product that's going to go into a barrel to age, yeah, or we're making it and it's going to be unaged and flavored later on. Okay. We don't use GNS products. Mm -hmm. And... Part of me says, Why don't we use GNS products?
0: <laughs> sure would be easier to get a tanker of 150 gallons. It, it would than, be yeah. so
1: great to get, you know, tow to GNS and try to make certain products that we do make. But I will say this I mean, it gives us a very esteemed appreciation because no matter if we're making product that's going to be unaged or aged, it's that same process. And so we're very confident in the way we make our products. And we feel that in the long term, it's really going to help us out quite a bit. We'll always make a lot of these unaged products because there's always going to be a market for some of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to tell people, say, you know, not everyone. Is excited about whiskey, is me or you? <laughs> I know this is sort of strange to think
0: about. I don't know what you're talking about, but okay.
1: But at the same time, it's one of those things where, you know, we're trying to provide several opportunities for people to enjoy our products. Yeah. And so we've got sweeter things, we've got lower alcohol things, we've got some that have, you know, a fruit flavor versus a mint flavor or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the majority of our sales, is, as far as uh, volume, is probably a little over 50% we sell on site. And that's a great asset to have as a business or someone that's in the craft distilling business. And that's one thing I've started to notice is a lot of these folks that are not putting anyone down when I say this, but a lot of these folks that are getting into this business and don't have a full appreciation for the actual marketing execution and sales side of the business, if retail is not a part of your business plan, then you need to seriously rethink what you're going to get into. Because if you don't have a plan to sell it, and I say a plan meaning you're going to do it and it's going to happen properly, you have no opportunities otherwise if you don't have a retail site, mm-hmm. especially one that's conducive to bringing people in. If you're in the middle of an industrial park, if you're in the middle of a very difficult to find location, you know people got to come to you if you plan on selling it to them that way. And I think the market itself, as far as craft distilleries are starting to realize that people are starting to appreciate, you know what? If I can pay my bills selling on site and then I can make more on top of that selling to distributors, that's great. But it allows you to be the control to be able to control your own destiny if you can sell on site effectively.
0: Okay. So then how do you make those products then that you want to sell? like what's your taste making process? I know you said that you're willing to try. You're willing to try things, and and I think like your black dog spirit really is a reflection of that. It's so smoky and so different than everything else. How do you come out with products that you like, that you can be passionate about when you do go to sell it to people, but you also make sure that there's a market for it so that you're not ending up with 3,000 gallons of Paul's Choice liquor that only Paul will drink? What do you do? How do you get those opinions? How do you know this is something that's worth putting into a bottle? Well, Luckily, we
1: have something that we didn't have a few years ago. We have a staff.
0: Mm, okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they they all have opinions and I value most of them. Okay. <laughs> and then on top of that, I'd honestly trust my wife's palate quite well. She's been dead on with any real concept that she's thought through or that we've seen through when we started it out and if we changed a certain uh plan associated with the product or if we uh decided to just take a completely different route altogether. The biggest thing is You know, you got to get into this business. You got to be passionate about it. And, you know, we're passionate about all the products we make, whether they're whiskey or a liqueur or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, we don't make gin. Mm -hmm. We don't make gin because we don't drink gin. (laughs) It's not not that we think down on anyone that drinks gin. It's just that, you know, we feel we're going to do a better job making what we care about. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when we come up with a product, it's something that we would like to drink and it's something that wouldn't excite us. And then you have a few people that you, whether it be a party or whether it be a, an official tasting panel that comes in that you invite mm-hmm. or whether it be you send it to some place that they analyze it, whatever you know, you got to enjoy that process of how you're making it and what you're making.
0: Because people will be able to tell if you're faking it, you know, if if you aren't really enjoying your product. Um, And and when you, especially when you're first getting started, you're trying to get noticed by people. You really want, I assume you you really want people to know that it's a genuine love that you have for the thing that you're trying to sell them and convince them to buy. And I mean, perfect example is you mentioned our black dog. Mm -hmm. That came because
1: it made sense. We said, okay, corn, we've got corn here. Mm -hmm. Tobacco is smoked here. They kiln fire malted barley in Scotland. (laughs) Okay, let's put something together here that makes sense. Yeah, And it's been, it hasn't been our best selling product, but it has been definitely one of the products that people really appreciate when they come here. And it's been a consistently selling product.
0: Hmm, Okay.
1: And I think it'll always be that way. You're, you know, certain products and certain Things have trends associated to them, but the black dog is very unique to us and very unique as far as a craft distilled product goes. And so it has that very, you know, hey, I got to get a bottle of this Mm -hmm. because I got to have these other people try. Yeah. You know, I got to take this to show my brother or take it to a party or whatever.
0: Yeah, so it's the thing that kind of gets people into the door. They know to like M.B. Rowland makes this smoked thing. Let's go try it, and, right. and and then they see the full catalog that that you guys can offer. Then your your bourbons and your unaged products and your flavored products.
1: Or now they're coming in the front door with bourbon, and then we're showing them everything else. <laughs> okay,
0: that too. <laughs> so I guess talking about your grains, you know, one of your one of the big things you like to talk about is you're a real grain to glass kind of establishment. Can you talk about what you mean by that? What does grain to glass mean? Well, of course, I'll say grain to glass, and then someone will say.
1: Well, you're not ground to glass. (laughs) Okay. You know what? That's great. There's a lot of farmers in this area and they do a good job taking care of that grain for us.
0: Like you said, it it comes down to what you're good at. You know your fermentation, and your process, those farmers who are raising your corn. Let them farm. Let them farm, right.
1: And it helps that we're in the number one crop producing county in Kentucky. So that, that, you know, let them take care of that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But there's a whole lot of, I don't want to say controversy, but let's just say uh, industry discussion. Okay. Associated with, do you make your product? Is it grain to glass? Do you buy it from someone else? Do you craft, blend it, or whatever? And you know what? I think it's a pretty simple, common sense answer that most people are going to come to the same answer if they just think it through. And I'll just put it to you this way: We've done day one what makes sense and what seems right and what seems authentic and craft distilled is just that. It's not craft distilled because it's small, and it's not craft distilled because it's hand-done. It's craft distilled because of the mindset behind it. Mm -hmm. It's not a board of directors with a bunch of suits, but at the same time, just because some guy has a little still and he's making it by hand, that doesn't mean it's craft distilled. Mm -hmm. It really goes both ways. But the bottom line is if you say handmade, and you actually are making it by hand versus when I say make it by hand, you know, are you paying close attention Mm -hmm. to that process from beginning to end? Okay. You don't necessarily even have to use your hands. It could still be push button. Are you cutting corners for the sake of efficiency? Uh, Simple things like that that are done, both large and small scale operations in this industry. But I will say this, you know, the whiskey market's a unique market. When I say that, you know, you got to ask yourself how many vodka or gin magazines are out there. There's two distinct whiskey magazines. And there's several bloggers and people that follow whiskey in a very, very close way. Yeah. And I appreciate that because I used to be part of that crowd. I still sort of am, but I'm on the inside looking out now. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is, you know, it's, it comes down to the quality of your product, and I think the passion's going to get involved there. And then on top of that, are you being truthful in the way you're marketing? You know, I, we tell you like it is. We don't have a family history here. Yeah. Never going to tell you that we do. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is we're going to tell you how we make our product. We're going to tell you why we think it's good. And if you like it, great.
0: And so far, a lot of people seem to like it more than we've got product for, so that's a good thing All time. right, that's a good t- <laughs> yeah. So that's great. So, you know, kind of tell it like it is. It is exactly what it is. You've located yourself very well. You, you have some of the best corn producers right around you. So you're really able to tap into your community also, I assume, to help kind of make that product. So what you do actually put in the bottle is truthful to who you are, but it's also kind of truthful to where you're located. The area. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people... And that kind of all plays into what you're you're producing here. A lot of people
1: push the whole locally sourced, and that's a great thing. It really is because, you know, large-scale operations are based on efficiency. They could care less if they get it next door or two states away. It has to come make number sense and efficiency production sense. And in our world, it makes both numbers sense and efficiency sense and business sense. It it it's everything. Yeah. And so yeah, we get all of our corn locally and when we use wheat it's all local. But at the same time we'll tell you our malted barley and our rye from the upper Midwest, because there's really not a whole lot of that grown in Kentucky. Okay, sure.
0: So you're kind of expanding the MB role and brand beyond what you're putting into the bottle, and you're kind of moving into education also. You know, you're five years old at the time of this. Your operation is five years old, about roughly at the time of this recording. So you're kind of a a seasoned, an old seasoned professional in the craft whiskey world. It's Funny uh, to say yeah. it that way. Yeah. So why education? What you know? Why the distilling camp that you're that you're starting up out here? What What was the genesis of that? Was it a desire to give back a little bit, or was it just you were so overwhelmed by people who were so interested in starting their own operations, you needed to formalize it a little bit more?
1: You'll be honest with you, it started because we did have so many people coming to us, being one of the first craft distilleries in Kentucky or Tennessee, and or really anywhere in this entire region and where we're located, and so many people came to us that we said, I, my wife, I employees at the time, you know, it's getting a little bit busy, you know, having people show up all the time asking about how we do this business. And I'm not talking a tour, I'm talking about a full business discussion. And so we ended up putting together the course and it has evolved to what we feel is not just something that's great for the people that come to us and also great for us from a business standpoint so that we can consolidate all those people into couple days. Okay. But also, we have started to embrace it as something that's good for the industry. And there's going to be folks out there that disagree with me on this, probably most of them making a lot more money than me. (laughs) But I'm looking forward to an industry that is thriving and has a whole lot of camaraderie going on in regards to the actual industry. And what I mean is a very well-linked craft distilling community is essentially going to be what is gonna help a lot of us have a lot of business freedom that we don't currently have, whether it be in your individual community or state where maybe you can't sell on site, maybe you can't sell a certain amount of product because of, you know, volume restrictions. Maybe that's one thing. At the federal level there's a push for craft distilleries to be treated the same way as in the wine and beer world. You know, a small winery that's about the size of our distillery is going to pay, I think, ten percent of the federal Excise tax for the wine that they produce, and I think a a microbrewery or brew pub is going to pay roughly 20 percent, and a craft distillery of our size, or some cases much much smaller, we pay 100 percent of that rate. Oh yeah, and so Mm. I don't say this other than as it's just an example. Mm -hmm. I still technically do not earn a salary from the business, and it'll be about a year or two before I really do. Wow. And the reason is very simple. My paycheck goes to the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau every month. I mean, yeah. we pay a lot of taxes. And in the spirits world, your tax rate is much higher than the wine and beer world as well. I call it the NFL of alcohol. <laughs> You're in the NFL, yeah. It's
0: professional now, guys. It's, uh,
2: You're either in it's it to serious, make money or yeah. not.
0: That's so interesting. So the federal government doesn't really distinguish whether you make a million gallons, or you make uh, a thousand gallons, or five hundred gallons. You, the excise tax is all the same Correct you. Yeah, hmm. and uh, you know that's just an evolution kind of thing. It, uh, similar movements
1: happen for beer and wine, and sure now there's a, a push for spirits. It might take a while,
0: but I think it'll eventually happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What can you tell me about kind of? design of your bottle you know how do you make it presentable on the shelf um what kind of bottle design did you go with what were you thinking about when you uh created this product did you do a lot of research first into what how other how your quote-unquote competitors kind of look on the shelves but what went into your creative process around the actual trade dress there's definitely a process to that and,
1: and it's been an evolution and you talk about us being in the business for five years, and I do feel like I've been in for a while when I think to myself that when we opened day one, we could not get spirits bottles unless we were going to buy it by the truckload. Oh, really? And if you're a 100-gallon operation, craft distillery on an old Amish dairy farm having to install electricity operation <laughs> or you know our type of setup, yeah. you're not going to buy a truckload of spirits bottles. Mm -hmm. And so we got wine bottles, and we had issues with those because they're made for wine, not for spirits. You know, come to find out, Headspace is a little bit different for wine bottles versus spirits bottles. And not too long after we were in business, we were actually approached by Owens, Illinois. It's one of the largest glass manufacturers for bottles in the world, actually. Mm. And they said, hey, we're starting a program so that you don't have to buy 10 or 20 pallets or whatever of bottles. And we've got a catalog. And to my knowledge, we were the first distillery they actually approached because we were on their pathway going from Kentucky to Tennessee. Hey. <laughs> and they said, hey, here's a little craft distillery over here. This, this, We can use them to figure this out. Yeah, let's stop
0: in and yeah. <laughs> see if this works. And,
1: uh, and I always recommend them very well as far as customer service. But they set up a, a warehouse nearby yeah. in Shelbyville, Tennessee, and I said, okay, so you, let me get this straight. I can buy one pallet at a time? <laughs> All right, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. You know, they, there's been a little bit of evolution on, on their program, but oh, bottom line, it's been great. That's great. And the bad part is, I, I don't want to say this is a bad thing, but, you know, it's, it, technically our bottle is still a, a stock bottle. Okay. And so there's a lot of people using the bottle that we use, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's not like we put our name on the actual glass or anything like that, and if we really get big and we want to change to a custom bottle, we'll do that. But it's a really attractive bottle. Mm -hmm. It's really nice because it is even. It's not tapered or anything like that. So putting a label on is not complicated like it can be with some of your tapered bottles or in some cases square bottles.
0: Yeah. Do you hand apply your labels? We
1: Well, yes and no. It depends on the person to be honest with Mm -hmm. you. We've got this high-tech roller machine. Mm -hmm. You can put the bottle on there and sort of turn it to peel the label off under the glass and it works well to be honest with you. But the actual labels we use when we changed from our wine bottles layout to this Spirits bottle. Yeah. We ended up going with a, a one piece label. So it's half the work to put that label on that bottle. And so we've got the back and front label combined there.
0: So you're kind of talking about it's, it's bottling day. You know, you got bottles moving down your line and then you got to apply labels to it. Kind of going from two pieces to one piece. It seems like an efficiency gain right there, it's right? Half it's the one work. thing to consider. Yeah, yeah, half
1: the work. It's half the work. You know, there were certain things going on in the industry in regards to the labels themselves, like we've got our little die cast going on to have the neat little crumpled look on the outside of the edge of the label. The way the, the actual layout of the label looks, we do have a marketing firm. Okay. And uh, they do a fantastic job. I always always say this to people, talking to them about the industry, number one, unless you just really are that good <laughs> at marketing and graphic design, that type of strategizing, I suggest you do hire someone. Mm-hmm. And when you hire someone, it needs to be of this mindset. You're the pilot flying the plane from the tower, and you better hope that they know what you're talking about to land that plane properly. And in the case of my first marketing company, yeah, you know they crash landed it every time. Oh my gosh! And I was just happy to not kill everyone on board. <laughs> and finally, I said, "Let's go with that," because I'm sick and tired of waiting on this. Yeah. And then the folks that we now utilize, they land the plane, they do a great job. And bottom line is, they do better than I could, and they they do better than I can see in my in my head whenever we're thinking things really? through.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: So, I mean, that's what you got to look for if you're going to hire someone. Wait, may
0: I ask who they are? Do you
1: want to... Uh... Well, they're actually local. Yeah. And their their name is Thrive Creative Group okay. out of Clarksville, Tennessee. Hmm. Very cool. Not to confuse anyone, we're in Kentucky, but Clarksville, Tennessee is literally three miles away. <laughs> so, they w- weren't even in business when we first came into business, and they've grown over the years as well. We've known them from a personal standpoint for years as well. They have the right mindset. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put anyone down when I say this, but they're very young and sharp. Okay. And craft distilling as an industry is an industry that you're marketing to young people. So- That's something to think about if you're going to have someone take care of your graphic design. Since they started doing our labels, now they do everything for (laughs) us. Really? Look on our, we get so many compliments about our website, they do our website. Oh, okay. Or they did the design at least. They do all of our designs for branding, for sales paraphernalia, for signage. It's a branding concept Mm -hmm. and you you have them do everything so that it all ties together.
0: That's great. So it kind of goes back to you know you you trust your staff with helping you come up with the flavors that you need and you go out and you hire a contractor to help you come up with your labels and how you are you hire a, a farmer should, to grow your grain. You <laughs> hire <yeah. laughs> right. So you you hire people that 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 are experts in what they do, but they also are on the same wavelength as you. You can share an idea with them and they can make it happen without in and I as opposed to fighting you on it or something. And uh, to be honest with yeah. you,
1: you know a lot of people are going to do this because I did. You know, when you get into this business, most people don't have, or even if they have a decent stash of money, they've got a budget still that they got to adhere to. Well, think about it this way. If you hire someone to do the job and it takes them twice as much time, but they're half as cheap and they still can't get it right. Yeah. Are you really ahead? What are you saving? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, price is not necessarily everything. It's also what you, you get what you pay for.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so kind of getting what you pay for, another expensive part of opening up a distillery today is uh, the world of barrels. Uh, oh, yeah. sp- if you're going to make whiskey, if you're going to make bourbon, you need barrels. It's in the law, so there's no escaping it. How has the barrel and the oak shortage kind of affected you? How do you maintain a proper source of or supply of the barrels?
1: Well, we've got two things on our side. One, we're very small, mm-hmm. and so we don't require a whole lot of barrels relative to an operation that might be needing five, ten barrels a day. The other thing on our side is because we have been doing this a few years, we have that established business relationship with the cooperage that we work with, and it's very clear in the way that they're having to run things. Every cooperage has to set up a production schedule and basically tell you, hey, I'm making barrels in three months. (laughs) Have your order by this day. Okay. And uh, they're doing everything from a long-term standpoint. Gotcha. I would shudder to think if we wanted to convert tomorrow to a from a size we are now to a five-barrel-a-day operation, what would happen as far as barrels? Could we get them? Maybe. Am I 100% certain? Heck no. Mm-hmm. But that's going to continue to be an issue, and it's not just the spirits world or the whiskey world. It's also the wine world. The wine world's buying up a whole lot of barrels as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's an oak issue having to do with just, I guess, we're thirsty people right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> But it's it's gonna level off just like certain things are gonna level off. I mean, there's there's a limit to everything,
0: right? And in the long term, that makes sense. But right now, so many distillers and winemakers are living under the shortage, so it's um it's an important thing to consider. Uh, have your order in early and have a good relationship with your cooper cooperage, and you know, be
1: realistic. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna open a distillery with ten barrels a day, <laughs> if you
0: if you're not sure if you can get those barrels. Guess what? You may not be able to make your product. (laughs) Let's rethink that business plan again. So another piece of hardware that's um, really awesome is your still. Where did you find that at? How how did you come up with getting the stills that you got? Well, of course, the
1: sort of the workhorse place for stills, if you're in America, is Vendome. And I have not heard anything bad about them. Mm Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I was not in their price range, okay. or they weren't in mine, or however you want to say that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've I've known a gentleman here for years named Jesse Lupo, and he started a very small still making entity called Trident Stills. And by the time we were ready to upgrade, he was actually in full force making stills, you know, expanding a staff to help make more of them. And he has a very interesting background in that he had a lot to do with steam and welding and just all of the little things that make sense for him to make stills. And he has an appreciation for craft distilling. And he and I really communicated a lot leading up to when we needed our equipment. And the stuff that he ended up delivering for us has has done exactly what we needed to do And it's really good quality equipment that will last us for many years. And I think he's got a a very bright future. His company's got a very bright future in the craft distilling market. I know that a year ago, his waiting list was a month or two. And now it's about six months or maybe even nine months. I can't remember what it is. Oh, my I, gosh. Yeah, so, but that's every maker out yeah. there for the most part. I mean, there's other companies that are getting into this, and they're uh, from overseas or they're buying overseas equipment and putting together, assembling it here. And I have no knowledge of the quality of their stuff because I've, I've never used it, and I haven't really talked to anyone intricately that does use it. And maybe there's some really good other options, but it, that's still a highly evolving part of the business. yeah. You know, the packaging side sort of caught up with the growth. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get bottles, you can get labels, you can get corks, you can get boxes, you can get all sorts of sales paraphernalia. But when it comes down to equipment, it's a little bit more complicated yep. and it's it's going to take probably another 10 years before you can say, okay, these are your five go-to options. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're looking to do this, this is who you probably want to talk to, you know. And one thing that was nice about uh, trident stills for us is we wanted a very simple pot still operation as far as our stills go and he already had a design ready to go for
0: that oh cool so you have your operation up and running now you know for the longest time it was just you you said you haven't paid yourself a salary yet how did you know it was time for you to add staff and what was that kind of process like because now you aren't just a craft manufacturer anymore you're now you now an employer. You're bringing in people. How did you find the right people to do it for you? What was that process for you like? What was it like when you finally realized you know what we got to get we got to bring someone else in. We got to pay them. Right. Well, I probably needed to
1: hire someone day one. Okay. <laughs> because it, it's you know if you're making product and running the business and taking care of customers on the retail side, you've got a full full plate, and there's limits to everyone. And I realized some of those limits. But, you know, the bottom line is real simple. It's a feeling, and at the same time, you know, there's there's ebbs and flows on, on hiring people. You know, our, our retail traffic is far greater than it used to be when I was working by myself. Yeah. And then as far as uh, people, we've honestly don't have a tough time finding good people. A lot of times they find you. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting business because of that, you know when people come to your actual distillery itself they're on vacation mode okay looking to have a good time yeah so people are in a good mood and so it's sort of nice to work in that atmosphere if you're if you're on the retail side on the production side you know well, who doesn't want to make whiskey? <laughs> Maybe some people. Maybe don't. some people, yeah, but yeah. But
0: <laughs> you're not gonna have any trouble finding a taker <laughs> for that. Yeah. Right.
1: Now I will say Wanted this. whiskey maker, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people have misconceptions thinking, oh, making whiskey that's fun. Well it mm. is a lot of work. Yeah. I'm just is. gonna throw that out there, you know, lifting heavy bags of grain and mm-hmm. stirring stuff over hot steaming, you know, mash cookers and basically cleaning pipes out because something gets clogged up, you know, you it's not always as as glorious as people make it out to be, but it it is
0: something where people have pride. Yeah. And they and they really take it to heart in a good way. Hmm. So kind of 5 years on, looking back, what's one thing you wish someone had told you the day you were getting started that you kind of know now? What's the one bit of advice you wish someone had told you <laughs> that you had to learn the hard way? Well, I'm thinking of one. We have a joke here. Floor drains
1: are, are a good thing. Okay. That's a joke amongst us Kentucky craft guys because some of us don't even have one floor. I've got floor I've got two floor drains, oh. but some guys don't have any. Show
2: off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but trench drains are, are nice. Now that's a production thing. Mm-hmm. Now on the business end, you know, the biggest thing is having a full appreciation for that executing your marketing side and how it relates to sales. It's one of those things where I didn't have a full appreciation of that. And many, many people don't. Many people are wrapped up in the whole concept of, hey, I'm going to make a good product and it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to build that brand. That's great. That's wonderful. First question, can you build that brand? Okay. And number one, that might be you. Mm -hmm. Number two, it might be your local market. Number three, it might be the type of product you want to make. You know, there's many things to think through. Yeah, a lot of people that want to make whiskey and aged products that I come across don't have a very solid plan on their unaged side. We had a plan. Okay, was it what it is now? Not necessarily, but we did have a plan. And some people are like, "Well, I want to make whiskey. I think I want to make vodka, gin, or so." You need to quit <laughs> thinking because unless you've got money in your mm-hmm. plan to pay for your business up until when that whiskey or brandy or whatever age product you want to make is is actually mature. Yeah. Then uh, you're gonna be in a world of hurt when you start going, hey, I need to figure out how money's gonna bills are gonna be paid, you yeah. know? So it's uh those it's,
0: are two long years when you have money going out and nothing coming. Right. <laughs> and so as far as me personally,
1: it's it really comes down to having a full appreciation of the that marketing and sales side and how that comes into play. In some cases, that has nothing to do with your business. You know, if you're going to do all your sales on site, yeah, and God bless you, <laughs> you know, that's honestly a good place to be. But if you're one of those situations where I'm going to set up in this building over here and we're not going to have a tasting room and we're going to sell it all to distributors, if one person is not going to be duly dedicated and, have, and be budgeted, you know, have enough of a support financially speaking... make it happen then everything else is going to fall like a house of cards
0: so kind of you know wrapping up how has owning a distillery now that you're on the production side of of making a product how has kind of owning a distillery and running a distillery changed the way that you approach bars and restaurants can you go out and relax or do you always go out and kind of take a look behind the bar and see if uh mb roland is (laughs) is present you know what's how has that kind of changed your mentality do you relax when you go out or, or does it work for you When I go to like a liquor store, for example, it's almost like a project. Mm -hmm.
1: I go and I'm just sort of looking to see what's there. I'll know if it's at the store usually before I get there. So it's not about hunting down my product. It's more about looking at, you know, how many craft distilled products are out there, how many products that are made by large producers are there that I haven't seen before. And then I start analyzing it going, who actually makes it? What's it made of? That kind of thing. And so it's... It's continuing education in some ways there. Now, on the going to a bar or restaurant, unfortunately, knowing a whole lot about how the products are made now, mm-hmm. there's certain products I just won't touch. And it's not because they're bad, it's just because I know I don't really enjoy that kind of, of, con- of product. Again, it's not because of a quality issue, it's just I know that style of product is not something that I'm interested in. I'll be honest with you, when I go to a bar or restaurant, unless it's like a real specific type of product or should I say operation that specializes in, you know, whiskeys or something like that, that uh, has something to do with our business, I sort of lean towards beer. Okay, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's my way of taking off, you know. I'm, I'm sort of taking a break from my business. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, okay. <laughs> Let's try something in an entirely different That's market right. space. Yeah. You know what? I only know so much
1: about beer. Okay. Let me try <laughs> Just it try and it. not have to worry about how it's made, you know. Gotcha.
0: So uh, last question. Someone goes out, they pick up a bottle of MB Rollins, be it bourbon, black dog, white dog, uh, one of your flavored products. How should they go home and enjoy that? Is there one recipe you can kind of... Let my listeners know about how should someone enjoy your product? What's one recipe they should take home with them? Well, we have a whole lot of recipes on our website. Oh, okay. And so
1: there's a lot of good ideas there. But here's a really simple, easy one. Because I I know that, you know, I don't want to sit here and explain 12... Steps and making, (laughs) no pun intended, making a cocktail. Okay. But we make one with our black dog and some amaretto.
2: Hmm. And
1: we basically blend it half and half. Yeah. And to give that amaretto almost a smoky kind of, or not almost, but a smoky flavor. And then we rim the glass with a little bit of uh, brown sugar, a little bit of salt, and we call it a smoked almond. (laughs) And you take a sip of it with that rimmed glass and it tastes like smoked almond if you were
0: eating it. Oh you know, my God, that sounds really incredible. Good. All right, well, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And thanks for showing me around. Where can people find the MB Roland Distillery at? We are in Western Kentucky, right
1: off of I-24. If you are coming from Nashville, Tennessee, we're about 50 minutes first exit whenever you cross over the state line. But if you just type in MB Roland Distillery, our address is 137 Barker's Mill Road and it is Pembroke even though we are outside of town. (laughs) So if you can find uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky you can probably find MP rollin Distillery. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Paul. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.